Uh, we're going to be continuing our series working through the book of Philippians. Uh, we've got as far as Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Um, and uh, just to set the scene by way of introduction, I want you to use your imaginations for me. I want to try and picture the scene. Uh, you're at New Street Station at 8 a.m. on a Friday morning. Now, some of you will never have seen 8 a.m. on a Friday morning. I want to use your imagination. Some will have to try harder than others. You're at New Street Station, 8 a.m. on a Friday morning, slap bang in the middle of the morning rush hour. And there's a guy playing the violin in the corner of the station concourse. Now, you're there, you're one of the passers-by, you have a quick choice to make, a quick decision that you need to come to. Do you stop and listen, and on top of that, do you give the guy some money, or do you hurry past with a mixture of guilt and irritation? Guilt, because you're aware that the musician is actually really quite talented, but you're irritated by the uninvited demand on your time and your wallet. What do you do? What's the morally right thing to do in that situation? Well, on Friday, January the 12th, 2007, in a subway outside a metro station in Washington, D.C., those private questions were answered in an unusually public way. Because that morning... Over a 43-minute period, a street musician wearing a tatty old pair of jeans and a battered old baseball cap performed six classical pieces to the commuters who are heading to work that morning. No one knew it, but the violinist standing against a wall outside the metro station in Washington, D.C., right at the top of the escalators, was none other than Joshua Bell. Now, the fact that all of you are not impressed by that revelation means I've got to explain, just so you get the dramatic effect. Joshua Bell is still currently one of the finest classical musicians in the whole world. Sense of awe now. Okay, Joshua Bell, wow. And that morning, he was playing some of the most complex yet elegant music ever written. Not only was he playing that music, he was playing it on one of the most valuable violins ever made. His performance was arranged by the Washington Post as a social experiment. They wanted to know whether people would perceive the presence of an authentic violin master. Would they notice? And that morning, would they make it a priority to listen? I want to focus on the screens behind me and you will get to observe what actually happened. Over the course of those 43 minutes, 1,097 people passed by. Out of those 1,097 people, 
only seven of them stopped for any period of time to listen. There was no applause, no accolades, very little money was given. Now, reflecting on this whole experience afterwards, the violinist whose talents, I'm told, can command up to $1,000 per minute, he commented, it was a strange feeling that people were um, ignoring me. But I guess, on reflection, that's not a great surprise, because violin maestros don't tend to be found performing in subways wearing tatty old jeans and battered baseball caps. Now, there is a point to this. Here's where I'm going with all of it. The New Testament presents us with another maestro. And again, uh, he was a little different. This maestro didn't wear jeans or a baseball cap, and in all probability, he didn't play the violin either. Nonetheless, he crossed a far wider gap than Joshua Bell. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and lived on planet Earth. In the words of John 1, verse 14, the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. It was the ultimate test of perception and priorities. I mean, what would the people of his day make of him? How would the reviewers mark his performance? Amazing power? Yes, and plenty of it. Incredible wisdom? Mind-bogglingly so. Exemplary character? He was perfect in absolutely every way. But here's the most remarkable thing about Jesus' life. One word. Humility. Humility. And it's this humility that the Apostle Paul chooses to focus on as he provides his own personal commentary on Jesus' appearance on the stage of human history. If you've got a Bible with you, maybe you could turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, no worries, the words will appear on the screens behind me. But if you're looking for it while you're finding it, I want to conduct a bit of a survey. So audience participation, quick show of hands. Put your hand up if you want to be humble. Okay, so don't kind of play the kind of, am I too humble to put my hand up, say I'm humble. If you'd like to be humble, put your hand up now. Or at least if you'd like to be thought of as humble, you can put your hand up as well. Okay, pretty much everyone. It's a funny thing. Most Christians would say, they want to be humble, or at least they would like other people to think of them as being humble. But at the same time, few of us have given a whole lot of thought to what humility actually is. And if I was to ask you what you are currently doing in your life to grow in humility, probably you wouldn't have a whole lot to say. It's like we learn certain words and certain phrases that we think make us sound humble. Oh, really, it was nothing. I mean, anyone could have done it. I mean, honestly, it was no big deal. But most of the time, in our heart of hearts, we don't really mean it. Inside, we're kind of congratulating ourselves for how humble we appear to others. And we kind of want the reputation of being humble without really knowing how to get to the reality of it. So what I want us to do is look at these famous words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 and see if we can kind of piece together more of a picture of what humility looks like in practice. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, or as some translations put it, do nothing out of rivalry 
or vain conceit, but here's our word, in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he, is the word again, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I want to pray before we go any further. Lord Jesus, in all the busyness of our lives, all the things that even now are racing through our minds, all the ways we could be distracted, I ask that we wouldn't miss you today. Lord Jesus, as you stand in front of us in the words of this famous passage, I ask you that no one in this room would miss you. I want to ask you, Lord Jesus, that you would open our eyes to see you more clearly. Would you unblock our ears to, to, to hear you speaking directly into our hearts? Whatever distractions there may be, I ask you that we would choose not to rush on by, just to, to stop for a while and gaze on you. And Jesus, as we look to you, I ask you that we would receive not merely a list of rules and regulations and do's and don'ts and extra laws to try and live out. I ask you that each of us, those who have known you for a long time, those who, who don't know you for themselves quite now, I ask you that, that we would leave with fresh sense of awe at who you are, fresh inspiration to live for you, whole new motivation to live as you lived. So Jesus, what I'm asking is that you would come and change our hearts. Do you come and speak right into our minds? Do you come and do what you want to do today? Amen. Amen. Well, before we try and unpack more of the detail of this passage. Just so you know the background to it, this passage is part of a letter to a church that Paul loved dearly. But like all churches, Philippi had its fair share of colourful personalities and problems. In fact, later on in chapter 4, which we'll get to in a few weeks' time, Paul mentions two particular ladies who seem to be having pretty public disagreements, and their conflict seems to have been typical of a far wider disunity within the church. So kind of in the style of the Washington Post, Paul engages in his own test of perception and priorities. He's presenting us with quite probably the greatest paradox ever. Not a violin maestro in a subway station, but God Almighty in humility. Hard to get your head round. But the path of humility is the path the Son of God took to reach us. And we are called to imitate him. Verse 5, Paul says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. In other words, we're to adopt the same way of thinking as Jesus. We're to follow the same path of humility in our lives. 
Now, what is the motivation? Why do this? I mean, as I unpack this, it will be challenging, and there'll be a big amount of us that won't want to do it. Why do it? Well, for starters, if we follow this path, it will kill off all of those inner motives and attitudes that tend to destroy and undermine our relationships with others. Things like pride and envy and selfishness and greed. But even more than that, as I want to try and show you in the time we've got left today, ultimately, this is the path to the very greatest joy. So here's what we're going to do. I want to highlight just four of the astonishing truths about Jesus that this passage talks about, that I think if we get them, if we grasp them, if we understand them, are really going to start messing with our heads, because each one of these four astonishing truths is like a paradox. On the surface, they're going to seem like a massive contradiction in terms. On the one hand, they're amazing truths, and they should make us want to worship Jesus with absolutely everything we've got. But on the other hand, when it starts to sink in that this is how we are to live as well, everything in us will recoil Everything in us will try to resist it because it's completely counterintuitive. No one else around us lives this way. It defies logic. It is not natural for us to want to live this way. It's the polar opposite of what we naturally shoot for in life. But if we reject this, we also reject the only assured route to finding true joy in life. So please stick with it. And please bear with me. Here's the first paradox. Here's the first apparent contradiction. The greatest fulfillment is found in emptiness. The greatest fulfillment is found in emptiness. Let's start with this phrase. Jesus was in very nature God, Paul says. Or as some versions translate it, he was in the form of God. What is that? What does that mean? Is it like he was a God wannabe? Kind of Christ in the form of God, but not actually God. Is it a bit like my friend who has a twin brother? Or like, wow, did anyone ever tell you, you look exactly like so-and-so? Are we talking God's duplicate copy here, but not the real thing? Absolutely not. The word translated here as nature or form is talking about the essential character of something. Paul's saying that before the earth came into being, Jesus existed as God. Make no mistake, Christ is equal to God in absolutely every way because he is God. But it's what Paul says next that's really mind-blowing. Although Jesus was and is fully God, Paul goes on to say he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I want you to just let that sink in. Although Jesus shared the rights, the privileges, the honor of being God, Jesus didn't selfishly protect his position or his prestige. Quite the opposite, in fact. He gave them up. And he gave them up in order to die on a cross for our sins. Now, the fact that I can say that, and the whole place doesn't spontaneously erupt in raucous praise to God, 
shows that we are all way too familiar with this truth. So I want you to try and grasp the magnitude of what we're talking about here. You may have heard this many times. Try and hear it now as if for the first time that you may be confronted, slap bang in the face, with the wonder of what we're talking about here. It is not like Jesus was just that annoying, exceptionally gifted guy in our class at school who kind of got top marks in all the exams. He wasn't merely a hugely successful businessman or the top earner on the Times Rich list. He wasn't just a very successful athlete or an Oscar winner or a front-page celebrity. No, when galaxies a million light-years away from here were spoken into existence, Jesus was there, present and working. And when every single angelic being in all the heavenly realms bowed down in worship, Jesus was the focus. But he chose to empty himself of all the privileges of being God in order to become a man and live with all our limitations. I'll tell you, he really was something, but he made himself nothing. I'll tell you, Joshua Bell in a subway station doesn't even begin to compare with that. Now, much as I'm tempted to stop right there and perhaps spend the rest of our time today worshipping Jesus, worship isn't the primary application that Paul's driving at here. He's calling us to demonstrate this same kind of radical humility in our lives as well. He's calling us to gaze in wonder and amazement at the voluntary self-emptying of the Son of God for us, and then go out of those doors at the end and follow his example in our day-to-day living. Now, if you find that easy, I suggest either you've misunderstood or you're deceived. I mean, in the real world, people tend to look for fulfillment in what they can acquire and what they can earn. That's the world we live in. And if we're being brutally honest, that's probably how the majority of us are living right now as well. But if we want to find true fulfillment in life, we must follow the path of Jesus. It's not all about our personal comfort and our popularity and our health and our wealth and our glory and our reputation. We can have all of that and still feel this empty ache inside. It's only when we empty ourselves of the need to have all of that that we get to experience something of the fullness of Christ. That's the first paradox. That's the first contradiction. The greatest fulfillment is found in emptiness. Here's the second one. It's wrong to think first about rights. It's wrong to think first about rights. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, that sounds great in our morning devotions. I've got to admit, it's a pretty inspiring verse to preach from. It's also a wonderful truth to sing about and celebrate whenever we gather to worship. But the challenge comes when we're called to actually go away and apply this in our lives. Why don't you just consider for a moment how you respond 
when you've been wronged. I don't know, maybe another car zooms into the parking space that you have been patiently waiting for with your indicator going the whole time. How do you respond? Maybe you did most of the work. Someone else gets all the credit. How do you react? Maybe you're overlooked for the ministry position that you feel you are perfectly gifted to do. I could go on, it's a long list. How do you handle injustice when you perceive yourself to be the victim? I mean, everyone knows that equality is a good thing. And doesn't equality mean that we have to protect and stand up for our rights? But think about it. Who had greater rights than Jesus? He had equality with God. He was the focal point of all the worship of heaven. He had full authority and full power over all of creation. But he gave it all up to gain our salvation. It's not that rights don't matter. Actually, they do. We're to stand against injustice and oppression. We're we're to race to the defense of others. But we're not supposed to be obsessed with defending our own rights. Now, I guess this can be applied in so many different ways, but I think it's particularly pertinent for us as a church right now as we meet across multiple sites. Because I guess our natural inclination is to want the best for the one site that we belong to, the one site that we're a part of. But I suggest we've got to do what's best for all the sites. We also have multiple leaders in the church here. But we can't do what's best just for one leader. We've got to do what's best for all the leaders. We've also got multiple people in the church. I mean, look around, it's true, lots of people. So we can't just do what's best for you. We can't just do what's best for one person. We've got to try and do what's best for everyone. And we also have multiple ministries or programs in the church, toddlers, and work with kids, and youth, and students, and senior citizens. And so, we've got to do what's best for all ministries, and all programs, not just channel everything into one. Do you see, we're to have a much broader perspective than just me, and how everything impacts on my own little world. We're not single-issue voters that only care about our site and our preferred leader and our personal mission and our ministry and our gifts and feelings and wants and needs and demands. A lot of the time, we have to die to all of that for the sake of the common good. Now, don't hear me wrong. This doesn't mean that you always have to agree with the leaders and all the decisions they make. This doesn't mean that you sort of quietly, passively ignore things that you believe to be wrong. But it does mean that your methods and your motives and your tone and your attitude and your actions, they really do matter. We've got to watch the way we react. It's not all about trying to defend my own corner and kicking off and causing a fuss if I don't get my own way and things don't work out in the way I'd prefer. I want you to have a listen to what the famous Christian writer A.W. Tozer had to say about what he describes as the my rights mentality that he observed among Christians. This is what he said. Few sites are more depressing than that of a professed Christian 
defending his supposed rights and bitterly resisting any attempt to violate them. Such a Christian has never accepted the way of the cross. The sweet graces of meekness and humility are unknown to him. He grows every day harder and more acrimonious as he defends his reputation, his rights, his ministry against his imagined foes. But the example of Jesus, right there in front of us, our view has got to be vastly different from the people around us who don't know him. To follow Jesus means to see allegiance to him as far more significant than any right we hold in this life. And to put Jesus first means putting our ambition for him above ambitions for self. And let's be real. It's incredibly hard at times. But to be faithful to Christ, we'll have to give up our rights. And who knows, the way this world's going, perhaps even our right to our own lives. That's paradox number two. It's wrong to think first about rights. Here's the third one. It's really something to be nothing. It's really something to be nothing. don't know if any of you saw Famous Rich and In the Slums on the BBC over the last week or so. As part of the build-up to Comic Relief Day, four celebrities, there they are, they are celebrities, honest, uh, four celebrities gave up their home comforts and moved into one of the world's largest slums. Great title for a TV show, Famous Rich and In the Slums. It's an even greater title for what Jesus did. I mean, he deserved the highest position available on earth. He could have come as an emperor. He could have lived in a palace. He could have had everything that money could buy. He, he could have employed countless servants to wait on him night and day. That's not the position he wanted. He chose another way. He, who was infinitely famous and rich, chose willingly to have nothing. Verse 7, he took the very nature of a servant. Now, I tell you when you look at this, servant is just an astonishing word to apply to God. But I think it only begins to capture the scope and the depth of the sacrifice that's contained in the Greek word used in the original text here. Perhaps a more accurate translation would be bond slave. What's that? Well, a bond slave was someone who voluntarily put themselves in slavery to someone else. And God intentionally chose this metaphor, this picture, this illustration to underscore the all-encompassing claim that the gospel makes on the lives of all of those who count themselves among Christ's followers. If you're here today and you count yourself as a follower of Christ, you shouldn't be hungry for your own fame and fortune. The gospel reminds us that our ambition should be to follow Christ's action. Why do you think about it? If God submitted his immense fame and riches to this call of servanthood, I reckon most of us probably can submit our money and our leadership aspirations and our time, and our musical talents, and whatever else, 
to this call to servanthood. And anyway, it's not like for most of us we're even particularly satisfied with the level of wealth and fame we've reached in life. I mean, be honest, how many times just over the last seven days have you complained because your current status doesn't live up to your ambitions? We complain about our job or our car or our wardrobe or where we live because we're frustrated that the path to what we really want is blocked in some way. Someone else got the job we wanted. We can't sell our house. We can't afford the next model up. Others don't seem to have quite such a high view of us than we do. Let's face it, most of the time, our desire to be something doesn't lead to a whole lot of joy in our experience. So why not consider following the example of Jesus? Why not try the path of humility? Why why not take seriously his call for us to take the nature of a servant? Now, one great measure, one great test, one great gauge of whether we've really got this, whether we're living this way in practice, is if we can be ambitious for someone else. If we can be ambitious for someone else's agenda and gain. I tell you, our willingness to make other people a success is a great test of the purity of our own personal ambition. So in verse 3 then, Paul puts a bit more flesh on this whole idea of being ambitious brothers by calling us, first of all, to stop doing something and then to start doing something else. First of all, we're to get rid of selfish ambition, of rivalry and conceit. Now, I reckon rivalry is pretty much what happens to all of us when we find ourselves full of selfish ambition. I don't know, someone else is enjoying what we want for ourselves. And before we know it, envy starts to get a hold of us and so fills our vision that we become unable to see the many blessings that we do have. It's like we can't see the blessings in our own life It's all we can do is see the position and the finances and the possessions and the gifting that someone else has. And although we're ashamed to admit it, we resent it. I want you to have a listen to what C.S. Lewis, a great author, had to say about all of this. He said, what we call ambition usually means the wish to be more conspicuous or more successful than someone else. It is this competitive element in it that is bad. It's perfectly reasonable to want to dance well or look nice, and you can put slightly more contemporary or relevant examples in that to you, and maybe dancing and looking nice is what does it for you, but you can put whatever you want in there. It's perfectly reasonable to want to dance well or to look nice, but when the dominant wish is to dance better or look nicer than others, when you begin to feel that if the others danced as well as you or looked as nice as you, that that would take all the fun out of it, then at that point, you are going wrong. I recognize, in any talk, people's concentration drifts, and you can be with it for a while and then kind of drop off. It's easy to switch off, and you've been listening for quite a while now. I don't want you to switch off at this point. Rivalry is deadly serious. Rivalry is deadly serious. For starters, 
it sets out to undermine the interests of others. It also goes to extraordinary lengths to protect our own interests. And in the process, it destroys relationships. It wrecks friendships. It splits whole churches. It undermines the gospel. And it makes us look no different than the world around us. I want you to listen to me. There is absolutely no place whatsoever for rivalry and selfish ambition in the church. I mean, we're the body of Christ, and there's absolutely no rivalry and no selfish ambition in him. So, if you can detect even a grain of this in you, I want to appeal to you, won't you put it off? Won't you crucify it? Won't you kill it completely? But that's only half the story. The second half of verse 3 here, Paul tells us that humility counts others more significant than ourselves. Paul says, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Now, my experience, it is very, very hard to be envious of others' interests when I'm actively looking out for their interests. I tell you, being ambitious for others to do well and to excel is just a brilliant antidote, a brilliant solution for envy and selfish ambition. It's as though suddenly we can serve others. It's incredibly liberating. It's like we can be second and still be satisfied. We're thrilled when someone else won. We're thrilled when someone else got the promotion instead of us. We're thrilled when someone else got the praise and the plaudits. Now, I know the way our minds work. The instinctive temptation here is to think that we're the exception to the rule. I mean, you don't understand my situation. You don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. You don't know my boss or my parents or my colleagues or my teacher or my tutors. I mean, come on. I mean, their interest is already their top concern. They certainly don't need my help in this whole department. But you've got to remember, it's Christ's example that is being held up to us here. He came to those who were enemies of God. He actively loved those who denied him. He served. He went out of his way to serve those who rejected him. He even died for those who were hostile to him. And so, when we consider what Christ accomplished for us, I think all of a sudden, serving our selfish spouse or our unjust boss seems pretty mundane in comparison. So I want to try and make this really practical. I want to consider three groups of people. Group number one, are there people in this church who maybe in the privacy, the secrecy of your own mind, are there people in this church who you think should serve you? Let's start with those people. You might have arrived at this point through perfectly good and pure motives. Perhaps 
you're heading up a ministry, or you're responsible for organizing a whole team of volunteers, or maybe you, uh, you, you contribute in the offering every week, and therefore you feel you are partly paying the salary of the staff of the church, and therefore you've earned the right for them to serve you in some way. Regardless of how you get there, just think of someone right now who, if you're being honest, you think should serve you. Don't look at them. <laughs> just think of them. What would it mean? What would it mean over the next few weeks for you to be more concerned with their interests? Practically, what would that look like? And what's stopping you from acting on that? Let's move swiftly on before it gets too challenging. Another group. Your friends and your peers in this church. Think of your friends. Think of your peers in this church. Let me ask you, are all your relationships, are all your friendships in this church strictly quid pro quo? In other words, I'm happy to serve other people because they serve me. And I'll serve other people, I'll serve my friends just as far as they are willing to serve me back. Now here's the challenge. Are you friends with anyone in this church who can't pay you back? Are you friends with anyone in this church who can't give you a whole lot back in return? And are you willing to serve even when it's inconvenient for you. I think that in our fast-paced, high-stress modern world, that's pretty much the real acid test. Not, can I serve you when it's convenient? Not, can I serve when I get something back? But am I willing to serve when it's inconvenient? When it kind of gets in the way of my own interests? Let's think of another group. And that's the group of people in this church who, for whatever reason, you think you should serve. Maybe you're struggling to think of anyone in that category. Try really hard. Is there anyone you think maybe you should serve in some way? I want you to be honest. When you serve, is your service cheerful and is it patient? How do you feel when you're serving the person who you feel you should serve and instead of appreciating your service, they treat you as though you are a servant? How about then? How do you respond? Because here's the issue. How will the world ever know that we are anything more than a club? Maybe a club with certain set ideas about morality, but how will the world know we're anything more than that? I'll tell you how they'll know. By the humility that they see in our service towards one another. As we cheerfully and gladly and graciously and patiently and forgivingly serve one another. And as we look, not just our own interests, but consider other people's interests first, then the world around us will get to catch a glimpse of something of the unique power of the gospel. Now, I know it seems crazy. I understand there's the very legitimate fear that we might get taken advantage of. But Paul tells the Philippians, they can do this, they really can do this, because Christ did it first, and they're to be conformed to Christ. It really is something to become nothing. That's paradox number three. Here's the fourth one, the final one. 
True humility promotes great ambition. True humility promotes great ambition. You know, sometimes I think we can misunderstand humility. I think we can assume that it works against having any kind of drive or ambition in life. But I don't want you to miss the fact that Christ's humility is displayed, it's worked out in his action. He made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. In other words, to have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, as verse 5 instructs us to, to have the same attitude as Jesus, is to follow an example of action and intention and initiative. It's not like Christ's humility restrained his action. It defined it. So it's wrong to think of humility as a kind of fabric softener on our aspirations, kind of smoothing and softening and tempering our dreams to the point where we're almost far too modest to reach for anything. In the words of John Stott, ambitions for self may be quite modest. Ambitions for God, however, if they're to be worthy, can never be modest. There is something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God. I want you to hear this. I want you to get the message. We can be humble and active. In fact, I think we must be. Talking about your ambitions for God isn't proud. It's actually essential. And so, I want to conclude by kind of stoking the flames of your ambitions. Because I believe God's looking to ignite some of you today with fresh passion and fresh ambition to achieve far greater things for him. I'm telling you, we desperately, desperately need more ambition. I mean, without ambition, exploration dies and all research stops. And our kids, well, they're set up just to fail and industry stalls, and causes fail, and civilizations crumble, and the gospel stands still. We can't let that happen. We mustn't let that happen in the name of humility. If our ambitions are worthy of God's glory, they can never, they must never be modest. But whereas most people think of ambition as kind of upward mobility, always looking for a step up and being willing to trample on others to get it. Biblical ambition points in another direction, the direction that Jesus traveled. Jesus was in very nature God, but made himself nothing. And as we've seen, he emptied himself. And we're called to follow him. We're to empty ourselves of the need for honor and prestige and wealth, and possessions, and health, and comfort. We're to look out for others' rights ahead of our own. We're to find joy in advancing the success of others. And in it all, we're to look to bring more and more and more glory to Jesus. Here's the bottom line. Your name really doesn't matter much 
my name really doesn't matter that much. The name of Church Central really doesn't matter much either. It's the name of Jesus that matters because Jesus is God. And as we've seen, he became a man and he willingly chose to live humbly. He chose to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. And he rose in victory to give us new life. And he's been exalted to the highest place. And to read on the next few verses here in Philippians 2, he, Jesus, has been given the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, you will be miserable if all you live for is the glory of your name. I'll be miserable if all I live for is the glory of my own name. All of us will all be miserable if we just choose to live for the glory of the name of our church or our ministry or our organization or our business. Above all of that, towering above all of that must be the name of Jesus. Which means that the right answer to every question is this. What will exalt the name of Jesus? What will bring maximum glory to Jesus? Because he's the one who deserves it. And so, as we actively choose to live this way, living humble lives, and at the same time attempting great things for the glory of Jesus, somehow, in it all, we get to experience more and more and more of the fullness of Christ. It's a paradox. I mean, it seems like a contradiction, but it's only the path of humility that leads to true joy.